This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, this month marks the birthday of iconic U.S. writer Samuel Longhorn Clemens, alias Mark Twain, born November 30, 1835, and once called by William Faulkner, the father of American literature. And now to celebrate and revisit that figure of brilliance and wit, my name is Samuel Clemens. My name is Samuel Clemens, and many of you know me as this guy. All over the world, he's considered a great American author and wit. Ah, here's an example. Suppose you were an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Congress. But I repeat myself. My family had to maneuver around Samuel Clemens, not Mark Twain. I should have listened when he said... It is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. My perceptions when young weren't great. I started out a patriot. I thought we should send our young men around the world to educate the savages at the end of a bayonet. By the time I was an old man, I realized the savages were the ones sending our young men out to kill. Always remember... Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. But I'm guessing you ain't here to listen to Samuel Clemens talk about politics. What you probably want to know is, how did Mark Twain learn to write so gosh tootin' well? I tried to learn from all my experiences in life. Many folks in my day wondered how I could imagine African-Americans as human beings. It is curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. Of what am I most proud? Um, steering a riverboat down the Mississippi. Danny Fool can write, but few and far between can captain a riverboat down the Mississippi. I believe even God would have to give that his full and undivided attention. I learned a lot about how to get by in life on that river. Now you might ask, or you might not, what did I think of my novels? My books are like water. Those of the great geniuses are wine. Fortunately, everybody drinks water. <laughs> I did like the attention. I can live for two months on a good compliment. Here's one of my sayings that's still quoted. The difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. <laughs> when I made it through being bankrupt, <laughs> I thought I was the biggest dog on the block. And then my daughter died. Broke my heart. And my beloved Olivia died. <sighs> Mark kept on entertaining to pay the bills. But Samuel Clemens, he lost that fight and slipped into a dark place for a long, long time. I tried to deal with it the best way I knew how. I wrote an honest book about what I really thought of my fellow citizens. But I allowed others to talk me into publishing the book after my death and my memoir long after that. Part of me wanted to skedaddle before my fellow citizens knew what Mark Twain really thought about them. Let us live so that when we come to die, even the undertaker will be sorry. I am sorry that me and Mark couldn't have been a better man to my wife and daughters, and Huck Finn and Jim, and the occasional jumping frog who crossed my path. My name is Samuel Clemens. That's who I am. Mark Twain is the person I played in public. Who do you play? Anyway, you want some final advice from a dead fool? Don't part with your illusions. When they are gone, you may still exist, but you have ceased to live. When you have a mind to, join me on that big riverboat in the sky. Lastly, I hate to be the one to tell you. The reports of my death have not 
being greatly exaggerated. My Name is Samuel Clements was produced by Bill Johnson with narration by Sam Mowry. And coming up next on the show... Guy Pierce is one of the most accomplished and unheralded actors around, noted for his roles in Memento, L.A. Confidential, and Brimstone. And now the Australian actor both astonishes and bewilders as the real-life, ostentatiously elusive 20th-century Dutch artist and moonlighting art forger Han van Meeregen in The Last Vermeer, who somehow managed to be denounced and convicted for selling classic museum artwork to the Nazis, while at the same time celebrated in popular culture by selling a fake Vermeer to them during the Nazi occupation of Holland in exchange for authentic classic museum art stolen from museums there, which brings up key political questions surrounding this relatively unknown figure elsewhere, such as what is truth really when it comes to historical victims or villains and all gray areas in between, and what about U.S. and Eurocentric claims to define those truths and imposing their self-proclaimed moral authority in particular demonizing and attacking third-world countries who were their genocidal victims from colonial times into the present. First, a little from the last Vermeer, then a discussion with Guy Pierce, phoning in from Australia. Listen, Joseph, I never could have trusted anyone in the way I trusted you. I hope you understand that. Perhaps then you can help me understand this. To my beloved Führer, in grateful tribute, Han van Meegeren. Very touching gift to Adolf Hitler from Holland's most famous hater of the Nazis. In the colonies of yesteryear, we were the Nazis. Yeah? We raped, we murdered, we took slaves, we even threw babies onto fires. And the statues of the men who led those glorious exploits stand proudly in our public spaces. The tide comes in, the tide goes out, and we do what we can to survive. Yeah? To keep the hope alive. In all our glorious colors, including gray. Bravo. To art. You know, I never really cared about art. But now I know that all truly great artists bravely walk through the fire of critics and doubting sheep to claim their place in history. And that is black and white. And that is why the merchants place such high value on art. They, they get to possess their own small piece of an incorruptible soul. But you could have claimed your place in history as an artist. In your own name and right, next to Heltz, Rembrandt, Vermeer even. God gave you all the talent in the world. And yet you went and wasted it all away. Because you weren't brave enough to walk through the fire. Joseph, please. I did trust you. I did. That's why I stood up for you. And it almost cost me everything.
Prairie. Hi, how are you? And welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. What was it that fascinated you about Han van Meegeren to portray him psychologically on the one hand and also historically? Well, um, there was a number of things. I mean, you know, I didn't know anything about uh, him uh, when I first read the script and I, and I, I looked back and just tried to get a, a sense of what his story was and, and obviously saw that, you know, he, for a period of time, uh, was considered, uh, you know, an absolute sort of pariah, was, was, was a villain amongst the, uh, the Dutch community because of having seemingly sold, um, you know, very important paintings to the enemy. And so during this trial, he was really demonised. And then as it came to pass that in actual fact, uh, he had swindled the Nazis, uh, he then was lauded as, as somewhat of a hero. Uh, amongst the amongst the country, and so just that real extreme change in perception, I thought was fascinating. Anyway, um, I mean, you know, during the trial, you know, he was a man who was accused of selling these very important paintings to the enemy, to the Nazis at the time, and so was then brought to trial. During that trial, he was really sort of held up as a, as a pariah, or the enemy of the state. Um, and through the course of the trial, when he then managed to turn, uh, turn it around and, and prove that not only had he not sold these paintings to the Nazis, but he'd in fact swindled uh, the Nazis, um, he was then held up as, as somewhat of a hero. So, you know, throughout the, uh, throughout the Dutch community. So I just found that extreme... Um, sort of perception of him fascinating anyway. Mm. Um, but of the fact that he did swindle the Nazis, I thought, was, <laughs> was, quite, a, was quite a feat. And I think for somebody who, who had, had attempted and had wanted a career as an artist himself, but had, I guess, you know, you would say failed, uh, to then, through his, I guess, bitterness or... Um, you know, through some sort of survival mechanism, uh, found a way to, to, to really make money and make a name for himself, and, and, you know, which obviously got him into a lot of trouble, which was, as I say, you know, seemingly selling these very important Vermeer paintings to the Nazis. Um, but, uh, but was, you know, it was all revealed that he, in fact, was, uh, was uh, faking these paintings himself. So, you know, quite just a fascinating... Uh, con job, really, mm. yeah. <laughs> and and by all you know by all accounts he had quite the personality. You know yeah. he was he was obviously uh, quite sophisticated and and really enjoyed a party and and so he 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 lived in the the lap of luxury during you know World War Two and everybody else was was struggling. So quite a fascinating peacock, mm. uh, if you like. And without giving too much away, what are your thoughts about why Captain Pillar? throws away an incriminating book that had belonged to Han? Well, I guess it's a, it's a question of, of how important he, he, he thinks it might be. And, you know, in the scheme of things, weighing everything up, um, you know, j just because, you know, uh, Han von Meeren might have, to some degree, befriended Hitler, you know, that doesn't necessarily make him himself a Nazi or a Nazi sympathiser. Uh, clearly, Han von Meeren is, is uh, you know, viewed in the end as, as uh, you know, somewhat of a charlatan. And so I imagine Pillar looked at his sort of charlatan ways as perhaps the reason why he was to, um, you know, sidle up to Hitler. And clearly he was trying to sell paintings to Hitler. So any, any you know, uh, attempts to befriend him would have only held him in good stead. So... I guess Pillar would look at this and, you know, maybe not see it as, a, as, a, as an indictment against his, um, you know, his personality, but just one of the many little flaws. Now, there is a key moment in the film when Han is denounced as a Nazi and pointing to the self-righteous hypocrisy of Holland when you say, quote, in the colonies of yesteryear, we were the Nazis. We raped, we murdered, we took slaves, we even threw babies onto fires. 
and the statues of those men who led that stand proudly in our public spaces. What are your thoughts about bringing all that out in the film? Well, I, you know, I guess it's about casting the first stone, isn't it? You know, we're all, we're all, you know, we as in as in every sort of nation, I suppose, to some degree, is guilty of um, horrific acts. You know, in 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 the name of progress, and uh, I, I think he, I think it's probably just his way of of trying to elevate above. You know, I mean, I, I don't know whether he's necessarily suggesting that, that the Nazis didn't do a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that he is there, but I, uh, I suppose also with Han Van Maker and he's somebody who he, he's clever enough. Uh, he's clever enough to to sort of always create a bit of a dog and pony show and avoid the 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 severity and the um, the seriousness of uh, of what people are capable of doing to other people. And I think he is somebody who's actually very hurt himself, and I think he's somebody who's a complete and utter narcissist. So when the attention is finally on him, uh, it, it sort of is more fitting, I think, for him to to turn the story the way he wants to turn it rather than really addressing... Um, serious matters so you know I I think it's probably just a way of avoidance to be honest and what are your thoughts by extension that all those colonialist powers now count themselves as the moral enforcers and authorities of the world and in particular against the countries against whom they once perpetrated those crimes in history I think it's really difficult to deal with I mean, I live in Australia, where you know, as we know, it was heavily populated by the by the English, and and the Aboriginal society and community has suffered ever since, and and yet, you know, here we all are as as white Australians, you know, proudly talking about what a free and wonderful country it is, and yet I, as a as somebody with a little bit of compassion, kind of constantly, you know, uh, aware, as many of us are of the plight of the Aboriginal people that has never really, never ever recovered, in fact, from uh, the English invasion and, and the, the, the subsequent years of, of um, you know, uh, difficulty that they've experienced. So, you know, it's, it's big stuff that I, that I struggle with, to be honest. Mm. And you've chosen such impressive and outstanding roles to play in films. What would you say goes into your choices or doesn't when you don't take roles? Well, it, it's a combination of things. But the prime, you know, the prime feeling, I suppose, is just, is, is just not being able to see myself do it. Um, not, not, not feeling like I can find it. There's obviously roles that I say no to because I just think they're not very interesting or because I think they're not well-written or, or I've done something like that before. Um, so there's often a number of elements, but, but I, you know, if there's an interesting role and a, and a, and a good, and a good director and a, and a good script, and I find myself saying no, it's, it's because I perhaps don't have faith that I'm able to find something that I can do convincingly. That's the point. <laughs> can I be convincing? Yeah. <laughs> As Tom Hardy says, there's only two kinds of acting, there's convincing and unconvincing. Now, you're in Melbourne, I believe. How is the pandemic going down there, and what have been the challenges for you on lockdown? Well, uh, I'm actually here in Perth at the oh. moment. I'm in hotel quarantine uh, because I've only flown into the country. Uh, I flew in on election day, so I've been glued to glued to the television watching your uh, incredible <laughs> election and the results. Um, so I'm in hotel quarantine and I will be heading to Melbourne next week when I finished my 14 days here. Um, but I've been very, and I've been overseas for the last two years. So I, I didn't have to experience the Melbourne lockdown, but I, mm. I have many friends and family that live there and spoke to them every few days and got a real sense of how tough it was. Um, we've had, I've been in Holland mainly and there, there's been lockdown there, but not to the extent that there was in Australia. But it just sounds very tough. And I, I have a sister with an intellectual disability and it's very hard for her to understand why she has to stay in all the time and she can't 
go and do the activities that she normally can do. So, you know, just I suppose on some level I feel by proxy I've been uh, engaged in it uh, or, or involved in it, but, but not actually there myself. So I feel fortunate in a way because, as we know, it's basically been a week or two now since there have been any new cases in Melbourne. Uh, here in Perth, the numbers are uh, pretty pretty much non-existent and, and I've obviously just seen that in the last 24 hours in America, you've had 140-odd thousand new cases just in one day. Oh, yeah. So as it rages across America and as it picks up in Europe as well, you know, in Holland, just uh, I think they're sitting between eight and 10,000 new cases a day. So it's it's really quite extreme. So I feel on some level very fortunate to be heading back to Melbourne where, you know, where people are coming out of lockdown. Um, but of course, you know, we'll, I, I, having just, I've just worked in America myself and, as I say, I've been in Europe. Mm. So we, we've been very cautious, been sort of tested every day when I was there in Pennsylvania working. And so I'm still in that mindset. So when I come to Melbourne, I'll probably be more cautious than everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> And I have another question about The Last Vermeer. Because the character is an artist, uh, did you identify with him on any level as an artist and the political world around you? Um, well, I, as an artist, I, look, I love to paint. I love to draw. Uh, I've always been very interested. Uh, I'm okay at it. I know I'm not very good. So I, in a way, I was able to tap into that. You know, I, I have great envy for wonderful artists and, 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 and think oh, it would be incredible to, to, be, to be that good and to be hailed as one of the, uh, you know, one of the icons in, in art. Um, and, and I understand, I feel, not, not that it was going to be my prime focus in life, so I don't feel like I've been majorly let down in life like, like Han von Meijeren did. But, um, but I understand that idea of envy, I suppose, and, and not being as good as you want to be. Um, you know, thankfully, I had another art form in acting that I, I've managed to pursue and do okay at. So I haven't had to turn to uh, sort of forgery and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Although some may some may say that acting is a type of uh, forgery, <laughs> I guess, uh, or fraudulent. <laughs> well, I guess and on a political level. Oh yeah, I guess well, that's on, what I meant on. as an actor in the political world. Did you relate to him? You know, on that level. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because I feel like it was such a, I guess, a different time, kind of. I, I don't really know. I, I, I don't know that I felt like I related. I felt like I was able to sort of get into his head and sort of un try and understand where he was at in, and the world that was surrounding him at the time and that he was this, as I say, was living kind of in the lap of luxury. I mean, he, you know, he'd, he'd sold these forgeries, these paintings. Um, of course, every time I say the word forgery, I'm giving the story away. So, <laughs> But, you know, of the paintings that he sold, he earned such vast sums of money that he was able to, to purchase himself about four or 500 properties just in Amsterdam alone. Mm. So that's an extraordinary amount of real estate. Uh, okay. Clearly, property was a lot cheaper during World War II. Um, but uh, but he was living in the lap of luxury while others were barely managing to put food on the table. So you know, I, I don't know that I could relate to him as such, but I but I but I could sort of understand you know who got a sense of who he was in mm. that in that world at that time. Okay, I have one last question. What do you feel this film and your portrayal of Van Meegeren has changed? enlightened or added to the historical record about him and about that period in time? Um, well, uh, I mean, it, on, a, on a very specific level, one of the things that we changed was that the, the way in which Hahn in real life proved himself was actually in the courtroom. They spent, they spent quite a bit of time, I'm not, I forget now how many weeks or months, where he actually painted a painting in mm. the courtroom and proved that he had been, in fact, the uh, the, uh, the author of those works that were sold to uh, the Nazis. Um, we changed that for our story because we just couldn't have, you know, our story go on for that long in the courtroom. I mean, I don't know, other than other than, you know, what what an audience's perception might be. You know, a lot of people, obviously, in Holland know about Hans von Meijeren, but outside of Holland, I don't think people do. So that I know that's not about the historical records. I know it's just about bringing a character. To, to light yeah. um, 
I mean, the interesting, the other interesting thing about this for Han van Meijeren was he, after the trial was over and he was hailed as a hero, he then died yeah. six weeks later of a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, yeah. a, what, a, what, a, what a way to finish your life. I know, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Guy Pierce, for calling into our show and for your extraordinary performance. I'm certainly putting out the word that it's Oscar-worthy. It was truly incredible oh, well, watching you. you in the <laughs> film. Yeah. Okay, and thanks again for calling in. Absolute pleasure. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, bye. Okay, bye. And the last premiere is now in virtual theaters. You're listening to Arts Express, and next up on the program... In the radio drama corner, it's very humid out. Thanksgiving, a holiday special conceived by Jack Shalom with connections to Isaac Newton, telephone poles, drive-in movies, Charlie Parker, and space. Very humid out. Humid? Yeah, humid. How can you tell? I'm looking out the window. I know you're looking out the window, but how can you tell? Because it's wet. You see water? I think so. You don't see water. I think I see water. Believe me, you don't see water. It could be water. Believe me, you don't see water. I thought I saw a drop. That would be impossible. That would be physically impossible. Isaac Newton impossible. So what is it, Grasshopper? I don't know. A a reflection? An artifact? I don't know. So dark out there. What's it like? It's like a blanket covering you, but the dark goes on forever. No light? You can't see. No. Very far away. Just a pinpoint. You can't see from there. No. Who was the fourth president? I was arguing with Sharon, and I couldn't remember who it was. It it was either Monroe or Madison. Monroe? No, I think it was Madison. No, Monroe. Could be Madison. Federalist Papers. Monroe was the short one. I think Madison. You sure it wasn't Monroe? I don't know. I get them mixed up. That's what you talk about with your wife? Yeah, that's what passes for foreplay. Sounds exciting. You never know what's going to turn on some women. You must know my exes. Harder for you when you're busy or just like this? What do you mean? Well, two months is a long time. Do you like to be busy or better when we're on these half-hour breaks? (laughs) I don't know. I suppose busy is good. Although I like the breaks, too. I like having the time to just be still and contemplate, thinking about the universe, thinking about how amazing this all is, how lucky we are. (laughs) Lucky I am. To get another chance at my age? I was wondering if there would be a shift in my model of the world being up here for so long this time. And I think there has been. I think my perspective has changed. And Neil said that that was the big thing for him. That was the amazing thing for him. More than even the walk was just seeing how small the earth really was. How much it was really just one infinitesimal speck of the vast overall structure. Pat? Yes? They haven't called. What? It's 1838. They haven't called. It's 1838. Look in front of your nose. It's been 38 minutes. They're eight minutes late. What is that supposed to mean? Look at the clock by the left panel. What does it say? You should be able to read it. 1839. That's strange. Maybe it doesn't mean anything. Call them. Call them. Call them. Righto. 
Houston. It's 1840. 40, waiting for your communication. Come in, please. Houston, this is Pat. Come in, please. Over. Houston, it's 1840, waiting for your communication. This is Pat. Come in, please. Over. Houston, this is Pat. Come in, please. Over. Check the mic. Ground control, Houston. This is Pat and Ed. It's 1841. We haven't heard from you, Houston. Money makes money, and the money that money makes makes more money. Jim. The mic is fine. We're off the flight path. No. We're off the flight path. Well, correct it for heaven's sake. There are no position parameters. How can there be no position? I don't know. There are no position parameters. What are you nuts? Read the freaking parameters. Do you see anything? Do you see anything? If I could read the freaking... There's got to be There aren't. It's completely blank. It's completely blank. Try the mic again. Jim, this is Pat. Pat and Ed. Houston, this is Pat and Ed. Come in, please. What time is it? 18.44. 14 minutes. They should have contacted us. Maybe they're trying to and can't get through. Maybe that's what happened. We have to just Nothing keep happened. Tra- Nothing happened. It's 1844, and they're supposed to have contacted us. We have epic equipment failure. That's what we have. There's a procedure. There's a procedure for everything. There's no procedure. There's a procedure for everything. And the next you thing to do... You just did the procedure. I just did the procedure. There's no more procedure. You the... can't not What's do next? a pro- Nothing's next. Nothing. 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 Can you see anything? Where? Out there. So dark out there. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to spend the whole car ride to the country with my face against the window. Watching the scenery change, trees, telephone poles, cars, farmland. I used to pretend that we weren't going anywhere. We were at the drive-in movies and everything outside the window was a movie where I had to guess the story. We only had two more weeks. Yes. It would have been Joni's birthday. November 26th. Three years old. Thanksgiving. I I think I need to go to the bathroom. I love my mother. I love my sisters. My brother. Camille, God help me. God. The beach. Plums. Joni. Morgan. Noah. 46th Street. Tennis. Flying. Space. Music. The Beatles. Lucy in the Sky. 
George C. Scott. Sam Shepard. William Shakespeare. Danny Kay. Neil Armstrong. Judy Garland. Gene Kelly. Killigan's Island. Ella Fitzgerald. Simon and Garfunkel. Charlie Parker. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. Django Reinhardt. Bohemian Rhapsody. The Newport Jazz Festival. The 1969 World Series Mets. Hiking Manoa Falls with my brother. Parent Teacher Day. One more. One more? One more. Last one. The family at the table. The family at the table. Happy Thanksgiving, Ed. You too. been listening to Thanksgiving by Jack Shalom, featuring Josh Michio as Ed and Jack Shalom as Pat. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And now on Arts Express. Bro on the global television beat, Lovecraft Country, liberating 1950s apartheid America, one monster at a time and torture by that other kind of social distancing, racial segregation. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro delves into that popular TV series Fantasy Noir at the juncture of H.P. Lovecraft's horror fiction and 1950s Jim Crow era racism in America, and a breakout trend with Get Out leading the way of black horror at the forefront penetrating white Hollywood, genres they had been locked out of. This is the story of a boy in his dream. But more than that, it is the story of an American boy in a dream that is truly American. Black boy, we're the Walkman Committee. You'd better get out of here. No, Jake. Go on, it just makes it tough for having you here.
named after some dead slave owner. Finally made it to the promised land. Hallelujah. Amen. Good riddance to old Jim Crow. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Lovecraft Country, liberating 1950s apartheid America, one monster at a time. It's now a done deal with the series already out in its entirety, but the best pilot and one of the best shows of the year is HBO's Lovecraft Country. The series is a second stunner by showrunner Misha Green after the too quickly aborted success of Underground about the Underground Railroad. Lovecraft Country refashions and redefines 50s America, not as consumer paradise, but as apartheid state, just as Underground revisions the pre-Civil War battle against slavery as a revolutionary struggle. The pilot of Lovecraft Country is a combination of Green Book and Night of the Living Dead, one a masterpiece and the other a hunk of unmitigated garbage. Lovecraft Country cleans up the trash that was the Academy Award-winning Green Book and resets its smug, righteous, driving Mr. Daisy reaffirmation of white liberal America by refocusing its road trip by three African Americans through a perilous northern landscape that is fraught with the still-present danger of white cops constantly threatening their lives. The pilot also revivifies George Romero's still-shocking masterwork, a zombie apocalypse, where the horror of the 70s America racist police state in the end outdoes the horror of the flesh eaters as the sole black survivor is gunned down in a finale that merges the Black Panther Fred Hampton's killing with the zombie film. Here, after the terror, the three African Americans suffer at the hands of white America on their trip from Chicago to the supposedly progressive haven of Massachusetts, the appearance of several of horror writer H.P. Lovecraft's signature monsters, the Shogoth, blobs devouring everything in their path with thousands of snapping teeth, comes as a relief. These monsters at least are finite and not part of a perpetual system that categorically excludes black people. Or, as the show would have it in quoting James Baldwin, part of a country where the American dream is achieved at the expense of the American Negro. The contemporary series nods at Romero's classic as, with police and the three black crew members trapped in the same house, this time the monsters attack and eat the police, revenging the death of the lone black survivor in Night of the Living Dead. Admittedly, the show is uneven and is more a series of spectacular parts than a stunning whole. However, its project of revisioning African-American representation and extending it both to genres and to areas of intellectual activity which blacks had previously been locked out of, is a mind-bending corrective to the representational apartheid practiced in white Hollywood and academia. Episodes 1 and 3 emphasize the socially critical aspect of new black horror, so prominent in the masterwork of this subgenre, Get Out. Tick, Letty, and the reliably stabilizing Courtney B. Vance as Tick's Uncle George take that most American of adventures, The Road Trip in search of George's lost brother. They encounter not the oddball but enduring characters of a Route 66, but rather a murderous police state aligned against them. In a diner, they view the 50s kitsch figures not as nostalgic but as menacing and are forced to flee with the arrival of armed attackers. A lingering and unnerving shot of a white man with a gun in the back of a truck suggests the chase and murder of Georgia jogger Armand Arbery, pursued by a gun-toting ex-cop and his sons. Finally, they are pursued to the border of a county which has a sundown clause, meaning, the sheriff explains to them, that they can be shot if they're found in the county after sundown. Episode 3, with Tick, Letty, and Tick's father back in Chicago, takes up the thorny 50s question of housing segregation, as Letty buys a home in North Chicago across the line of demarcation. Letty faces a brigade of white men parking their cars in front with the horns perpetually blaring to drive her out of her home. The trick, Tick reveals, is one that U.S. soldiers used in Korea, where he was part of their efforts to drive prisoners insane. That revelation of American mind games rewrites the myth of Korean brainwashing solidified in the film The Manchurian Candidate. The house is haunted with the spirits of African Americans massacred in the abode, 
inside and outside. Letty and Tick are tortured by that other kind of social distancing, the racial segregation, that with its attendant defunded schools and perpetuation of poverty, rather than being overcome, is still a primary way today of maintaining inequality. Letty revenges herself on the cars with a baseball bat and stakes her right to cross the color line. Episodes two and four are about bringing African Americans to the forefront of genres they have been locked out of. Black audiences lacking an identification figure in what was the squeaky clean genre of horror often rooted for the monster who ravaged the privileged victims of a supposedly all-white America. Episode two restores black agency to the genre as Tick, Letty, and George stand in the center of the standard horror trope of the haunted house. Here a Massachusetts mansion with a devil cult that not all of the characters escape from alive. Episode four places black characters at the center of an Indiana Jones type adventure saga, but with an African-American historical perspective. When Letty has second thoughts about crossing a frail rope bridge in a typical adventure sequence, Tick's father spurs her to conquer her fear by telling her the rope reminds him of the whip his mother described to him that was used by masters on black slaves. Throughout, the African-American characters also counter myths about black prowess exclusively in the fields of sports and entertainment. George and his wife, Hippolyta, are cartographers, drawing up maps in the Green Book that provide safe journeys through the dangerous morass of apartheid America. Hippolyta proves herself adept at astronomy and in a later episode acquires a lived historical knowledge by inserting herself into various epochs. Their daughter, Diana, writes and illustrates her own comics in a way that presages today's black comic resurgence. The family reads and reveres sci-fi adventure author Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.P. Lovecraft mentor and Dracula creator Bram Stoker. The series highlights black curiosity and intellectual acuity as the show itself crosses cultural color lines in showing that it's not for lack of persistence and interest that African Americans have not thrived in these areas. The show also, of course, rewrites Lovecraft himself, using a contemporary novel by Matt Ruff that highlights the horror writer's glaring limitations. Lovecraft wrote in the 20s with the clan firmly established and often, as in The Call of Chulu, set the stories a decade earlier at the moment when the progressive period of Reconstruction was still being turned back, just after statues commemorating the Confederacy had sprung up everywhere, and when a new category of whiteness was being constructed by pitting all the European U.S. arrivals against their non-European others. In Chulu, Lovecraft recounts the danger posed in the North by a Negro sailor from one of the dark, queer courts on the precipitous hillside, and in the South, in the bayous surrounding New Orleans, by a voodoo gathering containing singular and hideous rites. Lovecraft Country refashions and reverses this fear, as in one episode the Shoguths appear again, this time to destroy a squad of Chicago police who have come to wipe Letty out of her home. In the most stunning reversal of a horror staple, Letty's sister Ruby undergoes the Wolfman transformation from human to beast, a prosthetic tour de force pioneered by Rick Baker in An American Werewolf in London. The trick here is that Ruby transforms from an African-American to a Caucasian woman. This monster is instead granted full access to white society. Ruby had previously been rejected from a sales clerk position at the department store Marshall Fields, but white Ruby is not only hired, but made supervisor of the store. The episode spotlights the horror of white privilege as it is lived by black America. One problem with this series is that it stays at the superficial level, viewing Lovecraft as simply a creator of monsters, including in a later episode an alien-type Korean female that we sympathize with as she revenges herself on both the Japanese and on U.S. servicemen in Korea, both of whom oppressed the country. Beneath the surface prejudice, Lovecraft's creatures from the netherworlds actually constituted a critique of the rational, scientific, calculated world of a capitalism that was hell-bent on erasing all traces of the ancient myths and modes of thinking that his monsters represent. Lovecraft Country also signals the arrival in town of a new show-running sheriff, Misha Green, an African-American female writer whose work, both here and in underground, is peppered with images of revolt and resistance. The Macon Seven, plantation runaway slaves in the first series who make an impossible journey from the openly oppressive South to the more sophisticated prejudice of the North, 
and the genre and gender-bending intrusion of Tick, Letty, and Hippolyta in her second series carve out a far more openly rebellious path for black television representation, making Shonda Rhimes' professional and middle-class world of Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder seem tame by comparison. Exec producing on Lovecraft Country are J.J. Abrams and Jordan Peele. Abrams seems to contribute little to the mix except occasional melodic horror strains on the soundtrack borrowed from Lost, which often attempt to create the feeling of terror but seem divorced from the actual action. Peele, on the other hand, continues to invest the horror genre with contemporary social significance. This series is the true follow-up to his Get Out, where the horror is the psychic manifestation of the racist system which terrorizes the characters. Lovecraft Country, with its array of cops more frightening than the actual monsters, and its ordinary African-American characters deeply embedded in the street life of a community with its stickball and block parties, also casts a suspicious and critical eye on that other HBO series, Watchmen, and its Kamala Harris-type black female superhero vigilante cop whose opposition to white racism could equally be an opposition to black rebellion. The high point of Watchmen is the first 10 minutes of the series which figures the Tulsa massacre as jealous Okies revenge themselves on the economic prosperity of Black Wall Street. Misha Green, though, as everywhere else in this extraordinary show, goes that heavily awarded series one better in sending her characters into the past in an entire episode based on the Oklahoma bloodletting. This may be a series of parts rather than a coherent whole, but the parts are some of the most memorable moments of television in this year of Black Lives Matter. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Just let it be. The world won't get no better. We gotta change it now. Just you and me. Change it, yeah. Change it, yeah. Change it, yeah. Change it, yeah. Change it, yeah.